we can't go to the hardware store for milk and then get mad at the hardware store for not selling milk. You have to know where to go to get the milk, right? And it's the same with the medical doctor's office. They're not trained in integrative approaches. You're not going to get that from them. So knowing that, being able to go in with decisiveness, what you need, get the diagnosis if you can, get the recommendations if you can, but then you still want to run everything by your own filter. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I am here to help you navigate your hormone and health journey with so much ease and grace so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. It was 7.30 a.m. on a Tuesday back in 2010 when I woke up with the dreaded feeling that my body betrayed me. And I believed that my body betrayed me for many months afterwards until I began to fully understand what was going on. In that discovery, I finally began to understand my body and my hormones. I realized that my hormones are simply powerful, sensitive chemical messengers doing their best at any given time with the resources that they had. And during that time, to be honest, I wasn't really providing the best resources for my body or my hormones to function. I was constantly in go, go, go mode, tethered to the belief that my productivity was the only way I could validate my worth in the world. I ran and ran like a Tasmanian devil with shiny MAC lip gloss and cute three-inch heels so that I looked five foot five at any given time of the day. And eventually, I ran myself straight into the ground. And my hormones? Well, they did their very best as long as they could for as long as possible until that early Tuesday morning. It wasn't until I really dug into the research that I fully understood the roles of my hormones and what they were doing and how they were playing a role in trying to regulate my body, despite the chaos that my body felt each and every day. The chronic exhaustion, the brain fog, mood swings, weight gain, migraines, cravings, so much more was going on. I realized that if I had more hormone literacy, that if I knew my body better, I would have been more prepared to pivot in my habits and lifestyle choices. Once I understood how my hormones worked and when it impacted their ability to function, I made lifestyle changes and adopted tools and solutions to allow my body to actually heal itself. It just took two years to really figure it out. One of the biggest realizations that I had throughout the entire healing journey was that most women, including myself, and even most female doctors, don't really understand their bodies specifically their hormones, even their menstrual cycle. We lack the hormone literacy to really know our bodies. Realizing this and wanting to be a big part of the solution, I've created books and blogs, but most importantly, I created this podcast to focus on hormone literacy and powerful lifestyle changes. My intention with today's amazing interview and really every episode is for you to walk away from each conversation or solo episode knowing a bit more about your body and then having daily tools and solutions that you can use from the comfort of your own home because that's where most of our healing really takes place. At least that's where most of my healing takes place every single day. Now, if you're feeling like these interviews and even solo episodes are serving you and opening the door for your understanding specifically around your hormones and understanding your body better, I would love it if you left a review for the show. That way more women will find it and gain more hormone literacy. 
Now, today's interview with Dr. Aviva Ram is literally about hormone intelligence and why we need it. Our conversation is literally the essence of what this podcast is all about. I'm excited for you to walk away feeling more empowered and confident that you truly are the CEO of your health. Now, before I bring her on, I want to quickly sing her praises. Aviva Ram is a world-renowned midwife and herbalist who happens to be a Yale-trained medical doctor and board-certified family physician with specialties in integrative gynecology, obstetrics, and pediatrics. Her new book, Hormone Intelligence, explores the impact of the world that we live in on women's hormones and our health, and it brings to us new medicine for women, which is literally foundational, nutritional, natural solutions. I cannot wait for you to check out this book. And I cannot wait for us to welcome her onto the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Ava Rom. How are you doing today, girl? I'm good. I'm so good. Thank you for having me. I am so excited for this conversation. I was prepping up for about an hour before you came on because hormone intelligence Ooh, we're going to get into what it is, but I know my audience knows what it is. I know they know about body literacy. I know that they understand that the more that we own our hormone intelligence, we can be better advocates for ourselves in navigating the world of modern medicine. Or even better, we can really help to take care of ourselves in our own homes as well. So before we get into all the juicy questions I've got for you today and the conversation we're going to have, I would love for you to just speak into what was the driving force? What was the impetus for you? I know that you've been serving women for many years now. What was that impetus for you getting started? You know, oh, for my, started in my work or started with this book? Both. How about that? Both. Oh, okay. So started in my work, I was actually really young. I was 15. And someone handed me a book called Spiritual Midwifery. And it was it's this as hippie, crunchy, up granola book as you could possibly get about people having their babies at home on this farm commune in Tennessee. But I was already in college and I was studying women's health and history and politics and starting to understand kind of like this was 1981 and we were in the like self-help women's movement and just starting to understand really how mistreated women are in the medical model and how little women understood their bodies, right? At that point, 1981, women were still really in the dark. So many women. 2010, we were still in the dark. Yes, I know. <laughs> it was bad back then. It was like the dark ages back dark then. Dark ages. <laughs> so all these things kind of coming together for me and being this very inspired teenager, because you know how we are. We're so idealized changed the world when we're teenagers. I was totally that teenager. And there was no way to learn any of this in school. So I'm like 15 in this pre-med track. I get this book on hippie home birth midwife, literally leave school and go apprentice myself to a midwife in school in Western Massachusetts, get trained to be a childbirth educator, start learning about herbal medicine. And boom, I was off on this whole other path so that by the time I was 22, I was practicing as a home birth midwife and as an herbalist. And put this in context, at this time, there was a complete polarization between what was going on in the natural medicine world and conventional medicine. There wasn't even the term alternative medicine yet. There was not the term integrative medicine. This was such fringe stuff. 
So you either were like all in or you were all out. So let's say you had any hormone imbalance and you went to your doctor, you were going to get the pill, but there wasn't just the outside of the box stuff you could go to like herbal medicine or midwifery or acupuncture. I mean, just, it, it was really hard to find. So I had this whole life where I was doing all those things, serving women in my community. But I found that as women did have to interface with the medical model, they were going kind of, I used to jokingly say, but like into the belly of the beast. You know, here's someone who's wanting to do something natural, which is completely fringe. She's got something going on that needs medical attention. She goes to her doctor and her doctor's like, what, are you crazy doing that herbal stuff? There was no respect, no option. And often then that woman really had no option other than the medical or the surgical. So I wanted to go to medical school to bridge those worlds. And so ultimately after 20 something years of midwifery and herbal medicine practice and writing a lot of books and already teaching at medical schools and now having four kids of my own, I went back to school and finished that undergrad degree that I had started when I was 15 and went to medical school. And since then, that's exactly what I've been doing is bridging both worlds, really bringing the natural into medicine, but also helping women who may need medical to understand when they need it, what they need it, how to DIY what they can, but also how to advocate for themselves when they do need to go into conventional medicine. And that kind of creates this intersect. And I, and I also teach healthcare professionals. I write curricula for Yale Medical School, et cetera. But that really also led to an intersection with me writing this book is that you know, being an MD and also being in that alternative space, I hear from tens of thousands of women every year who are falling through the cracks. You know, they're struggling with endometriosis and they fall into that statistic of it taking nine years to get a diagnosis. And then when they do get a diagnosis, it's always the same thing, the pill, pain medication, surgery, women who are struggling with symptoms of what seems pretty obviously polycystic ovary syndrome who are told by their doctor, well, if you just controlled your weight, you know, you'd be able to get a handle on this or, oh, depression. I mean, just take an SSRI. Women who are struggling with their fertility, who are just kind of directed down this very medicalized path, or women who are maybe not getting pregnant as fast as they think they should, who then get pushed down this fertility you know, multi-billion dollar medical pathway. I'm not, I mean, I'm a doctor. I'm not opposed to fertility treatment. I sometimes send my patients for it. I'm not opposed to the pill or pain medication or surgery. But when we're jumping to these big guns for problems that actually sometimes have simple solutions, sometimes they're complex but are still natural, it's time for something different to happen. And I think it was just such a critical mass of hearing from women seeing the struggle and then knowing what I was seeing in my practice, which was, you know, really substantial results over many years of work, realizing, okay, it's time to bring this out to not just the women in my practice, but to the t those tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of women who really are looking for answers. So there you have it. That's what got me inspired. And it is my inbox my patients, my social media comments that keep me inspired every single day. It's what I'm hearing from these 
women and their stories and the answers that they're seeking. And that's how this book, Hormone Intelligence, came to life. Mm. I know it seems to me today more than ever that women are really diving into hormonal intelligence. I know that we have a long ways to go and there is you know, a lot of conflicting information that women are getting. Uh, it can be quite confusing. And I think more than ever today, and I know you talk about this in the book, that there is very much so a hidden hormone epidemic that is going on. And speaking to Speak to me a little bit about that. Like I know that you're probably just seeing that not only with patients and emails and DMs. I know I am as well. But why are we seeing so many hormone issues today? And is part of it the fact that we just kept ignoring it before? You know, I think there's definitely some of the fact that we're talking more openly. So there are experiences that women are having, whether it's the fact that, you know, nobody talked about miscarriage a decade or 15 or 20 years ago, certainly not in our mother's and grandmother's time. Even uh, postpartum depression has been really taboo. And we're talking about these things now. You know, we can say the word period on national television. We can talk about vaginas now. We can talk about things that we couldn't talk about before. So yes, there's more transparency and more disclosure. That said, there are also more problems. We know that in the past 30 years, the rates of endometriosis, the rates of polycystic ovary syndrome, the rates of fertility challenges have all definitely increased. So it's not just that we're talking about it more. And there are reasons for that, that all of these things have kind of come to, well, hopefully they've come to a head. I don't think they quite have yet because the numbers seem to keep growing. But I mean, here's one of the ones, I mean, you're a mom, I have three daughters startling statistic, girls younger than ever are going into puberty. And I think when we look at this fact that girls now are going into puberty as early as six and seven years old, and we're not talking about one girl in a million, we're talking about anywhere from seven to 23% of girls, depending on the demographic, the demographic being black and brown bodied girls are much more likely due to a variety of factors that have to do with cultural and social racism that are playing out in human bodies, but are much more likely. But girls across the board are starting to have breast development at six, seven, eight years old at, at those rates and, and periods so early that the Kotex company some years back created a, 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 like a, a brand within their brand for these young girls with hearts and stars and rainbows and unicorns on pads. And so we have to say, okay, that has not been going on. We can definitely measure like the decrease in uh, in age of puberty from our grandmother's day to now, and it's gone down by ye- several years yeah. now, like five years, give or take. Yeah. So when we when we look at it, we can point to a number of factors. One is changes in our diet that are hu- just hugely substantial. Another is endocrine disruptors, so environmental chemicals that play out as hormone disruptors in our body, which can come from our food as well, which our grandmothers and great-grandmothers were not exposed to, and which can also come from our body products, our household cleaning products, but even our furniture and computer keyboards and everything that has flame-retardant chemicals in carpet. it. Carpet. And then sh- everything. Carpet is huge. I know. And then stress. You know, stress is actually now considered an environmental toxin. So stress can increase cortisol levels, which can actually have an effect on um, young girls, but all of our bodies. So there's this kind of perfect storm of factors that have come together. And any one or many of them play out in women's bodies. And you know, because because our hormones are so exquisitely sensitive, so sensitive, think about like one drop of blue dye 
in an Olympic swimming pool. Like one drop of blue dye Olympic swimming pool, you don't see it. It's invisible. It hardly seems like anything. But that's the level of chemical volume that hormones are acting at in our body. So it doesn't take a lot from the environment to cause disruption. We need certain foods in our diet, not only to form the building blocks of hormones, but to help detoxify and eliminate those environmental chemicals. So when you add all of this together, it's a recipe for hormone disruption. The good news, and this is where hormone intelligence comes in, is that each of us has a sort of self-reporting system, if you will, a way to check in every month once we hit puberty all the way into menopause in the form of our menstrual cycles. So our menstrual cycles actually act as a vital sign as to how imbalanced, if at all, our hormones might be, how disrupted our hormones might be, and is a really powerful indicator that as our hormone cycles, uh, menstrual cycles kind of realign with this more natural blueprint that they're meant to have, that we are actually making a difference by the things that we're doing to improve our hormonal health. That's very cool, I think. I think that's very, very cool. I, I love how, you know, what happened to you and what is it, it's May right now, what happened to you in April, maybe even March, March and April, you are going to experience in in May. You know, I remember, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember I was in a really big project about a year and a half ago. It was in October. And November, it was the time when we were trying to get pregnant. And so September was a hot mess. I was, you know, it was crazy times. I was not doing the self-care. I was, you know, probably, you know, it's even though my nutrition's dialed was probably maybe eating faster than I was supposed to be. I tend to eat fast. Now that I'm a new mom, I, I think it's an excuse. I'm like, I can eat fast now. I'm a mom. I got to be. But I remember October because we were going to start, we were trying that fall and ovulation was off. It was off by a couple days. My my PMS symptoms were raging. And I was like, yeah, no, that, that was such a great, it's such a real time indicator of what it so is. <laughs> you just can go back and be like, what did I do or not do last month? <laughs> And you know, it's so easy to rag on our hormones and be like, ugh, my hormones this, my hormones that. I, I, I jokingly say in my new book, when somebody asks us, you know, what's a hormone? I mean, the answer is it's a chemical messenger. So I say every time we blame our hormones, we're like shooting the messenger instead of saying, wait, wait, tell me, tell me what I need to know. Bring it on. So true. Yeah. No, they, I always say your hor hormones are never trying to sabotage us. Never, ever. They are doing the best they can with what they've got in the moment that they're in it. And they're really responding to us to what we're doing in the moment, in the minute. And I said, you know, what is it? It's a great reflection. <laughs> What am I doing in this moment that my hormones are having to like, she's doing this now. We've got to do, we've got to regroup. <laughs> well, and the thing too, that's so powerful is that, you know, the way you say our hormones are telling us now what we did two months ago, that also, it's like a pay it forward situation, right? So our hormone status now, and this idea that our hormones are a vital sign also is a deep indication of our overall health, the health of our ecosystems, our life, our environment, our food but also set the tone for you know, what your health is in your 20s and 30s is gonna influence how you go into menopause. How you experience menopause is an indication of your brain health, your cardiovascular health, your bone health. So in some ways, it, you know, it can be like, oh my gosh, you know, men have it so easy. They don't have to menstruate. They don't have to deal with these hormone cycles every month. But on the other hand, we actually have something they don't have. I got something they don't have, which is like this monthly 
almost like a report card, but not in a teacher or student way, but in this really positive like checklist way. Boom. How's that going? Boom. How's that going? It's the first thing I tell women to start doing, you know, when it comes, if they're, if they're, we're seeing a slew, let's say estrogen dominance, we're seeing low progesterone, we're just seeing a slew of different things, PMS symptoms that just feel like they're out of control. And I always talk about the main event being ovulation. And so often we don't yes. pay any attention to the main event. I know. You know, we're paying attention to the to the first day of our cycle. And I said, you know, we get so much more clarity on our progesterone levels, on how the luteal phase is going to be, how everything's going to feel for us as we move into that last phase of our our cycle, if we if we measure it like that, you know, we get to feel what's going on. And there's such great apps where we can actually even document what's happening with us at the same time. And and I I, I speak to so many women in perimenopause, especially as things get to a little bit more rocky. We start to see more transitions, and that information I find is so critical to really knowing yeah. what's going on with us. Well, it's so funny because I just pulled these out the other day for an Instagram thing that I want to do, but I went back, I found, I have this whole folder. I just happened to have it here while we were interviewing because I literally just pulled it out. And this is my menstrual charts that go back to 1984, I think. So I have all these moon charts because I used to do it on a moon calendar and then I'd write my notes in a journal. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But I've got like a decade and a half that I, I mean, I stopped in like, so no, I've got like two decades of them in here. I've got like 20 of them in here. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. I know. It's so fun. Just charting is so powerful. You can do it on a chart, do it on an app, but just paying attention to not just your menstrual cycle, like the physical signs, but how am I feeling? You know, when am I feeling a little juicier, sexier? When am I feeling a little more internal? Because we can start to actually think about our lives and what we need in relationship to our self-care and also our productivity in relationship to our cycle, if you want to go that far. But I think it's really fun and interesting. Oh, yeah. And how we eat, how we yeah, contend yes, to ourselves, exercise, exercise, spend money, spend money. There's oh. data that shows that we're more likely to splurge, spend, and like rack up our credit card bills if we shop premenstrually than at other times in our cycle. So like knowing that could be a good time to keep that credit card tucked in your wallet. Yes. Or like maybe not take it to the store with you, you know, (laughs) set yourself up for success. No, I I really do believe our menstrual cycle is our superpower when we're able to own it. And it's so empowering to, like I said, I, I think medicine is is, is moving in the direction and, and we've had this beautiful ability forever to really watch things in real time. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, I just got a CGM off. I'm going to put it back on, but I love and I have, you know, I've got, we've, I've got all kinds of little gidgy gadgets to track things, especially as a new mama. <laughs> I try not to track I feel my like sleep. like everyone's got their aura yes, ring these days. I put it know, away because like- it just kept saying <laughs> I'm not sleeping, which is true. <laughs> You're a mama with a baby. Exactly. I was like, I don't need the aura ring to tell me what I already know to be true. Well, it's interesting because when women are using fertility apps, one of the things I do encourage them to do, or, or any cycle tracking app, is turn off the predictor, especially while you're learning your cycle. You know, true to what you just said, like, I don't need something to tell me what I already know. But if you don't already know, and it starts to create these anticipatory expectations, it can keep you from actually paying attention inward to what's actually going on for you. So I think, you know, when you get a, if you learn to do a cycle tracking app, awesome, turn off the predictor, pay attention to yourself, be your own predictor, start to write it down or track it in your app, but like learn your own patterns first. 
I agree 100%. Yeah, we are all unique. We all, so many things make make and shift us and create us. And um, it, yeah, I think people get really hung up on, oh, ovulation's got to be on day 14 or my cycle has to be 28 days. And and these just, these are not true. We have, a, there's a lot of scale of normality for each and every one of us. And yeah, getting to know your body first, I think is so, so critical. I love that piece of advice, especially with apps that are constantly dinging you and telling you what should be happening to you. And it can feel discouraging and maybe even anxious driven when we, we don't, we don't match up with what the app is saying. Well, it was so funny because my, my oldest daughter, she's 33 and she was trying a, a cycle tracking app and she had traveled or something had happened. And so her cycle was late, like a couple of weeks off, right? It was, you know how cycles sometimes just shift up. And so she was shifting up and she got this, she said she was feeling a little PMSy, and her, um, her app dinged and said, you're ovulating. And she was just like, F you. And she slammed down the app. It's like so classic. Yeah, exactly. No, and I love her response. <laughs> it's so good. It's really funny. <laughs> I want to sw- switch gears. One of the things I love about your story, and I'm so glad I asked you to share it, is that you, you had come from a place of really holistic medicine before we were doing holistic medicine, when it was very much, you're absolutely right, fringe. I would even say in the early 2000s, it was still extremely fringe. Um, and women didn't, didn't, everything was taboo still. I remember having chronic fatigue in 2010 and being recommended birth control and Xanax and walking out of that office like, you've got to be kidding me. Like just, I know so many women kept butting their heads against the system and I want to get into medical bias in just a second, bias against women as well. But I love that you came into medicine specifically because you wanted to help women navigate that differently. When I talked to so many other doctors who have been in allopathic medicine, it was a defining moment. Either they got sick themselves or they had a patient who just kind of rocked their world and they realized that they couldn't go to bed at night every single night knowing that they really didn't have a lot for their patients, especially when it came to women's health and then left it because they wanted to be able to offer what they consider to be a more functional approach, a more integrative approach, or more preventative approach. And so I love, I love that it's the flip side for you. You were like, I already knew it was broken. Well, and it, it makes a difference, you know, yes. actually, because I think one, a lot of doctors who get disenchanted by conventional medicine and leave it sometimes go so far the other way. They throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm like, no, actually we do need the conventional test here. And for me also, I think deeply like rooted in my being is this philosophical approach that nature comes first, that we can trust women's bodies, that we should be listening to women. Whereas sometimes conventional doctors, they, they start changing the modality but the attitude doesn't change. So sometimes I see instead of like a pill for every ill in the conventional world, then I see, I jokingly say a supplement for every symptom in the functional world, or there's still so much testing going on and it can be fabulous. And there are, you know, wonderful physicians on in both worlds and crossing the worlds. But I think for me, that difference is really deeply rooted in that no, we don't actually need to always use the test or the pharmaceutical, but we don't always need to use the functional test or the supplements either. There are also simple daily natural lifestyle things that we can do that get us started. And then if you need to add in the supplement or the pharmaceutical, fine. I think the other thing is conventional medicine is so fundamentally based on 
as you were saying, you know, we'll talk about bias. I'm just going to jump right in. But this bias about not listening to women, not respecting what's going on and judging that I don't always know that that gets healed in those doctors who went into conventional medicine first, because it's so, in, it's so deeply entrenched, you know, I think we need to do trauma. We need a lot of trauma healing we do. work for physicians. And it's entrenched in terms of the education. You know, I think it starts there. It starts in medical school, um, but it's been entrenched since goodness. Oh my goodness. I, I, <laughs> 1800, well, a long time ago. Like oh, it's even like probably the 1500s. Yeah, it's just, just, I mean, it through. really goes back. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about the inherent inherent medical bias against women in the medical system. This is the fight that I fight a lot because I, I get like you, emails, DMs of women getting the runaround, whether it's a Hajimoto's diagnosis or an endometrius diagnosis or a PCOS diagnosis or- Chronic fatigue, uh, as you mentioned. Yes, all I mean, of it. It's a legitimate recognized medical condition. It is an absolute medical condition, yet 70% of physicians think that it's still just a psychological in, in women's head diagnosis, which is tragic. Um, okay. So what do you want to talk about about it? Okay. It's such a great question. You know, I, I would one, love to hear a little bit about your experience. I knew you were coming in knowing this and witnessing it at full hand. I think just kind of one, acknowledging it from your own personal standpoint and then talking a little bit about how do we how do we better navigate? You know, I, I have cheat sheets for women, you know, when they're they go in for menopause, the types of questions to ask their practitioners. Or I've created all these ways in which that we can just ask better questions to our practitioners to kind of get to the root of what's going on with with our bodies. But I don't always know, you know, I then I always come from the place of like, well, if that wasn't even taught in med school or that wasn't even taught you know, in terms of like digging deeper into what is driving this particular issue. I don't even know so often if some doctors will have an answer, even if they have these questions ready to, ready to kind of shoot off. Oh, it is so complicated. Um, so first of all, you know, we have to unpack the knowledge gap, right? So what you're saying is a lot of physicians don't even know. So the knowledge gap, and Maya Dusenberry talks about this really beautifully in her book, Doing Harm. I had her on the show. Oh, I love her. There's the knowledge gap, and then there's sort of the respect gap, right? The listening gap, the trusting women gap. So the knowledge gap is reflected, for example, in a study that came out in the last couple of years showing that of, of physicians surveyed about endometriosis, 63% of them did not know how to diagnose it beyond the most basic common like period pain and pain with sex. There are a lot more symptoms than that. And of those physicians, most of them did not know how to treat it. So even if they were able to diagnose, they didn't know what to do next. So there's a huge gap that, and that's just, you know, one example of what doctors are not taught in medical school. You know, I have an article that I wrote that is like everything I learned about being a, a good doctor I learned as a midwife, basically, which is trusting women, listening to women, listening to lived experience and all this, you know, out of the box stuff, which got me to look under the hood to be able to answer these questions. But in medical school, there's so much bias that leads to gaps in research. Most pharmaceuticals are researched on men. Most medical interventions are researched on men. We just don't have the information. And even when we do, 
um, have agendas for research, sometimes the nobody wants to do the research. We saw this again with endometriosis. The National Institutes of Health tried to give grant money, millions of dollars of grant money to research endometriosis. There were no takers on it. So we've got this huge information gap. We've got these deep biases that run through medicine historically for hundreds of years now that you know started back in ancient Greece where women were described as hysterical. The word hysterica, hysterikos, actually means uterus. It's the Greek word for uterus. And there was this belief that all women's conditions stemmed from the uterus being unmoored from its place in the abdomen, floating and circulating around the body, causing all of these medical and psychological problems. Then as we got into the 1900s, well, then really into the 19th century, then the 20th and early 20th century, that got kind of transmuted into everything being a sort of either religious problem in early America or, you know, not puritanical enough or a psychological problem a la Freud. Basically, everything became in women's heads. There was a psychogenic origin for everything. So there are these deep biases that basically say that most women's conditions have some psychological origin. And the problem is a lot of these physical conditions don't have, you can put your finger on it, labs that, or, or, or uh, symptoms, you know, things that can be borne out immediately. But many do, and doctors just refuse to do the testing. So typically, for example, a woman will go into a doctor's office and say something like, I've been gaining a lot of weight. I'm really tired. I'm constipated. I'm a little depressed. I'm not sleeping well. And the doctor will usually say something that sounds like stress. I had one patient whose doctor told her that if she controlled her fork to mouth problem, she wouldn't, she would lose the weight. So there are all these attitudes that are pervasive. So that's the bias part. And those biases have even deeper levels when we start talking about the combination of sexism and racism in medicine that's pervasive. So these two factors, this knowledge gap and this inability or unwillingness that's so deeply entrenched in medicine to not listen to women. And then you add in a third factor, which is doctors themselves are really stressed and overworked. So the average doctor, primary care doctor or gynecologist is seeing upwards of 30, 35 patients a day. Even if they're just seeing 20 patients a day, do the math in your head of like, you know, you've got a seven hour workday, eight hour workday, maybe take a little time for lunch, answer all your phone calls, do all your charts and see even 20 patients. It's, it basically leaves doctors about 15 minutes to see patients. They have to make sure to cross their T's and dot their I's legally in the medical chart. They've got the questions that they want to ask. And we know that on average, a doctor inter- interrupts his patient within the first 90 seconds to three minutes of a medical appointment. So it's very hard to hear anything if you're not listening, if you're rushed, you're stressed. On top of it, you've got these dismissive attitudes. And I'll tell you, when I was in my medical training, if a, I mean, obviously I was very different and I didn't internalize this because I had already been practicing a whole different way. But even in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you would see a doctor literally do an eye roll when a patient would come in and say, I'm really tired, my joints ache, I just don't feel well, I'm having trouble getting out of bed. I, th- I read about fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome and I think I might have one of those. And you just watch the eyes roll. And then you know from that moment on, this patient is not taken seriously. 
and there's no further investigation. She's basically given, as you said, the pill. The pill, Xanax. <laughs> and Xanax yeah. or something, something an SSRI. <laughs> yeah. And it's really hard because as women, we've been taught generally, I think this next generation hopefully is being taught something different, but we've been taught generally to not question authority, not make waves. We don't want to be seen as difficult or complainers. And we can see the glazed look coming over when we start talking about the alternatives we want to try. Or your doctor may say something, well, where did you get your medical degree, Dr. Google? And then you add to that, you might be wearing like a Johnny with your back flapping open while you're having this conversation. So you feel so vulnerable. A lot of, you feel vulnerable. You feel disempowered. It's very hard to ask the questions that you went to ask. And even if you do, then we're back to the knowledge gap where your doctor might just say, I don't know, or dismiss something alternative it, just because they don't know. It just gets to be a kind of this stew that makes it difficult for us as women to get our needs met and get our questions answered. When I was pregnant during COVID, it was just me heading to the doctor's office every day. And I had a really great OBGYN, but I also knew where she, kind of her limitations. And um, at the same time, I, yeah, I have Hajimoto's thyroiditis, although it's in remission, but was really curious about what was going on during the pregnancy and during every trimester. And also I had had lower vitamin D levels, lower iron levels prior to this. And I had been monitoring this um, and ordering my own labs as well. But once I was in the system, I was like, well, maybe she could just order them for me. But we had a lot of deep discussions about whether or why she wouldn't order certain labs. And, it, and, and so we just agreed to disagree and I went and ordered them somewhere else. And, but, you know, there's very, I don't know how many women really have that ability to just be like, okay, this is as far as you go with me. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of me over here and interpret labs and do my thing and do my, you know, supplement if needed. And we kept, it was, she was very sweet about it, but it was every, every time we came to see each other, I was like, so da, 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 you know, and she was like, mm, it's not where I, it's. This is what I do. And so I, I, it was a really fascinating experience for me, but I knew I had, a, I had other options. And that's important. It's like knowing that health, first of all, is 90% of the time we're out of the doctor's office is what creates health. And knowing that your doctor is just one part of the story. And that doctor may, depending on what you're facing and what condition you have, that doctor may be a large part of the story or it may serve as more of as a consultant. But you know, knowing that you have other options. And I think that health isn't just about going to the doctor anymore. Most people these days, you know, even if it's for a cold, they say, well, I, I'm gonna go to my naturopath and I'm gonna see my doctor in case I need a Z pack. Like you, I hear all these things, I'm gonna go to the doctor, see if I need a Z pack, but I'm gonna go to my acupuncturist and I'm gonna go to my massage therapist, I'm gonna talk to my naturopath. So we do have teams now of healthcare providers. And as long as your doctor is respectful of your other options and you can afford other options or your insurance will help you cover other options. Um, you know, it's wonderful to use your physician as a sounding board. And I do that for a lot of patients who come to me and they're like, I really want to try this. I really want, I just don't know if it's safe or not, or if it's reasonable and is it okay for the condition that I have? And I think that's important. And, um, and yeah, and yeah. getting clarity where, where they can meet you and where they can't. 
You know, I think for, you know, growing up in the 80s, um, you know, I and my mom, my parents, um, we co-opted everything over to the doctors. You know, we outsourced all of it. You know, if I had anything, we were going to the doctor's office. And I know that a lot of that is shifting and changing. And I think the more, and I think that's what I'm so excited. I just, when I saw the title of your book, I was just, oh, it just sung to me. I was like, hormone intelligence. I mean, this whole podcast is about hormone intelligence because it's about knowing when you go to your doctor, you're like, okay, this is where they'll meet me here. And I know, uh, you know, where to get my, get these other needs met, like having this team or, or just having my daily things or having other places I can kind of check in and kind of knowing where each and every one of our practitioners stand with us. I'm writing that down. Hormone intelligence. It's about knowing. Yeah. I love that. Just because you knew, you knew what your doctor's limitations were and you respected that and, and you're an empowered person, right? You're comfortable using your voice. And I think that is something that we are so undertaught and undereducated about. And I'll tell you, I had medical school experiences, medical residency experiences that would curl hair if it weren't already curly or curl someone's toes or something. I don't know what you'd say, but curl your hair, I think, where truly if I didn't fight for what a patient was saying for themselves, they may have died. I mean, just, you know, the inability of physicians or the system to really hear what women are saying. And there's this cultural belief, this cultural attitude of women, you know, being silent, playing small, doing all the emotional labor, not speaking up, not speaking out. And we have to have to be able to speak up for ourselves. It's so important and not worry whether our doctor is going to like us or not. It's not about a popularity contest. Hopefully you can be in a phenomenal relationship with your physician as a partner if you need to have a physician on board for something. But we have to be able to speak up for what we need and want and expect. And when we're not being heard, that can be a very dangerous situation because your symptoms may not be heard and you need them to be heard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and especially with a lot of our textbooks, as you mentioned earlier, diagnostics, drug testing, you know, interventions done on men, even after we pass the law that it has to be done on women, as you mentioned, it's just not happening because we are beautifully complicated and a lot of researchers don't want to touch it. (laughs) And well, and that's one of the reasons that women have historically been left out out of research. We're either pregnant or our cycles make us too complicated so that we're, we're not predictable enough. We don't have this steady state. But that also makes our responses to pharmaceuticals different than men's, which makes it all the more important. Yeah. Extremely. And our symptomology being so different. And so when you read the textbook and the symptoms are supposed to be this, and and we have varied symptoms completely different than what is in textbook, it's no wonder things are getting missed. And, um, and yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Here's the thing is that we know this. We know this to be true, and um, and we know kind of what what can be expected, and and what what you can get from your primary or your OBGYN, and 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 what and what kind of inner knowing. And I, I had a woman, I remember I had written something about this a couple of weeks ago, and she's like, you know, it isn't fair that we have to know our bodies so well. And I, I had it was a reframe for her, and I was like, honestly, it, it's it's you know it's 
It's such a, you know, not only a reminder that that we are the CEOs of our health, that's the, the whole, this whole podcast, but we get to be empowered in that. We get to reframe that. Yes, you know, you go to your primary and potentially they, they, they don't see the full picture, but that gives us the opportunity to really to know ourselves. And I think that is that is really, I, I think that's a big part of what your book is, is really talking it about. Is. I do agree. It's unfortunate that women who go to the medical doctor's office have to do the emotional work of navigating a relationship that should be supportive, nurturing, and should hear us, right? We shouldn't have to do that. But, um, you know, there's this expression, it's about relationships actually, which is, you know, if like, if you have a partner who's not necessarily like the most verbal person, and then you're always upset that they're not talking more, the expression is, you know, we can't go to the hardware store for milk and then get mad at the hardware store for not selling milk. You have to know where to go to get the milk, right? And it's the same with the medical doctor's office. They're not trained in integrative approaches. You're not going to get that from them. So knowing that, being able to go in with decisiveness, what you need, get the diagnosis if you can, get the recommendations if you can, but then you still want to run everything by your own filter. I mean, an emergency is obviously different, but we still are the ones in charge of making the decision. And so I think that's, to me, is such an important reframe. As you were saying, in the 70s, 80s, 60s, 50s, you know, in the 50s and 60s, your family member or your doctor, I should say, didn't even have to tell you if you had a diagnosis. They could tell the most, you know, empowered family member. So you could be a woman with a diagnosis and your husband could be told and you not be told. And that was legal. Things are so different than that. But I do often, because of that, encourage women, if you are going to a medical provider's office and you want to bring a support person or advocate who's going to really help you get your needs met, if your mom is a certain age or above, she might not be the best person because more likely than not, she's going to say, honey, listen to the doctor, you know? And so bringing someone who can really be there for you as an advocate can can make a difference in you getting heard and getting what you need. And hopefully it's going to change. I mean, I'm seeing definitely between the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, a greater attention being placed on understanding sexism and racism in the medical setting. So I'm hoping that maybe it it may take 10 years, which is too long for a lot of people to wait, but we will see a sea change in how things are done. Mm. I'm also seeing in younger the younger generation of women really, you know, being more involved in their bodies, listening to their bodies, body literacy, tracking their cycles, and really speaking up about what is what is going on with them. And so I'm hoping that that continues to translate as well. Often the women I'm talking to are in their 40s and their 50s and and just felt like they've been had been given the runaround for so many years. And you know, it's always on the on the other side of like no one told me. Why didn't anyone yes. tell me? I hear this all the time. One of the biggest comments I get on my social media when I post anything about like a health fact or tip or something is I wish I knew that when or I only wish someone had told me. I hear that so often. And you know what? That's why I wrote this book. I mean, I wrote this book it's not anti-medical. It actually says, you know, this is a great time if you need to use a birth control pill, or this is an appropriate time if you're struggling with this to have endometrial excision therapy. But the idea is that here are all the things that your doctor never learned so that you can be informed and empowered about these. 
And you could bring this to your doctor's office if you do need to go to the doctor for something. But here's the DIY also. Like here's the DIY assessment. Is it my estrogen? Is it my progesterone? Is it both? Is it endo? Is it PCOS? Is it nothing? Am I totally normal? And all this time, I thought that that discharge I was having in the middle of my cycle, which I thought was BV or yeast infection was ah just normal stuff. Or you know, how much period pain is normal? Because this is part of the problem. We don't know, right? I mean, I spoke with Jessica Mernan who wrote Know Your Endo, and she said that she spent most of her young life, her teens and early 20s, thinking that her horrible, horrible period pain was normal because guess what? Her mother had horrible, horrible period pain, so it must just be normal. So the book is really about it's about so much. It's about understanding where we are in the medical system. It's about how to advocate for yourself. It's about how to deep dive into being your own healer in, in a very profound way and learning to re-love your body if you've fallen out of love with your body. But also it's this information that medical doctors don't get. And I know because I am one and I know what we got and I know what we didn't get. And that's what I really wanted to put in women's hands were these actual actionable tools that we could use to maintain hormone health if we already have it, but also to reclaim hormone health if that's something that has not been something we've had ownership of before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think a lot of us, I I, I knew it. I don't know if I've ever met a woman who hasn't had some type of hormonal imbalance, to be honest, at some point, you know, because like you said, a lot of factors are definitely playing a role. And when our hormones are so sensitive to our environment around us or to how we respond to our environment, and goodness knows more than ever today, women are, their, their lives are stacked and their obligations and their priorities are stacked and and unfortunately you know, it's they're not always on that list <laughs> and um, they're often not. often not i feel that i mean i've you know i you know i i've been such a touter of self care and in and, and body literacy and knowing our bodies and listening to our bodies and now that i'm a brand new mama i'm just like Psh, out the door you know <laughs> totally yes i actually even sometimes in my practice when i'm trying to get a mom to do self-care, I'll have to frame it in the perspective, especially if she has older kids and daughters, I'll have to frame it in this perspective of like, well, what kind of role model do you want to be for your daughters about their self-care when they become moms? So even though I'm framing self-care, I'm still framing it in the perspective of like, how do you want to show up up as a mom? That's how I reframe like, it too. Oh. Well, because it's so true. I mean, at the end of the day, it's where our mind is. It's where our heart is. It's where we're at. And it's, you know, I talked so much about fatigue and and depletion. And, and at the end of the day, we want to show up for our people. But when we have nothing, we've got, when we're on the floor, we can't do that. We can't show up for our people the way that we want to. And that's always the reframe I'm offering is like, how do you really want to show up for your people? Okay, we've got to clean this up. If, if we're going to totally. show up the way we want to show up. Although yeah. what I really want to say is you deserve to love you. <laughs> totally. And you're first. Like, you deserve this just because. just because. But if I have to find a way to convince you, here's how I'm going to do it. Yeah, I think we forget. You know, I, I think of us in a way, I know this is kind of a funny way to compare it, but you know how like if you have an elastic waistband or something, like you can stretch it and it'll bounce back forever if you just stretch it the right amount and then let it go. But like if you take a piece of elastic and you overstretch it, like you just like really overstretch it, or even if you just keep it stretched out for too long, it loses that resilience. It loses that bounce back. And so, you know, for each of us, we have to know what is that point 
at which we're overstretching or stretching for too long and not let ourselves get there so that we can still have the bounce back. But it's hard. I mean, it's so hard and COVID has only made it harder, right? Now you're at home and your kids aren't even off in school or your family members can't support you. So I think we can beat ourselves up about not doing our self-care too, which then is kind of silly. But if we get all stressed that we don't have as much time for self-care, that's not doing us any good. So even how can you grab small snatches of self-care? Like for me, this the shower, like just taking a little bit of an extra long shower and not thinking about work, just being totally present or putting on music for five minutes while breakfast is cooking and dancing my head off, you know, just those little moments that can remind us of who we are. That isn't just the stress I think is so healing. I believe that we all deserve the instant wins, the little micro wins throughout the day, you know, and the more that we get to capture those little instant moments, um, it can really, like you said, just remembering who we are and just really reclaiming some of that energy, reclaiming some of our essence. Um, Yeah, I'm always trying to like, and I think they're honestly non-negotiable for survival. (laughs) You know, how can I, how can I sneak that in? It's so true. It is. I mean, I, I have to do it. Even with, you know, even right in the midst of this book launch, it can, like things can start to feel so consuming or so urgent that, um, and whether that, whether you're a mom or a physician or a bus driver, whatever it is that you're doing, it can feel so consuming between managing it all that we just keep on going until we crash. You know, it reminds me of toddlers when they're learning to walk, they keep going until they fall. But as adults, it's like we don't necessarily catch ourselves before we crash and fall. I'm hoping that more of us will listen to that. Those like start to, because the body knowing isn't just about our hormones. It's, I mean, cortisol is a hormone too. It's a stress hormone. It's it's one of my three players is the big players. Oh yeah. (laughs) Totally big player. And uh, learning to pay attention to the signs when that is in overdrive can really help us with our other hormones too. Mm, mm. Mm. That and insulin, those are my two favorites to talk about. Those two, how they they can they can bully up on other hormones. <laughs> and they're not sure doing can. it on purpose, but <laughs> no, they're just doing the best they can. But they have a lot of power and sway in the body. And it's no wonder we're struggling. We're so we wonder why we've got metabolic dysfunction or we've got insulin resistance or crazy cravings or mood swings and you know, or 45. And it just, you know, it all just kind of starts to feel like it collapses on us. And I'm so excited for this book because, you know, it's I think, you know, that that quote, when we know better, we do better by Maya Angelou. And I know for so many of us, we want to, that's what I love about women is when we know what is going on, we will take action on it. And it's just a matter of that, of just having that knowing. And that's what I, you know, when I saw that book, I was like, "Mm, that is what we're talking about here. It's that knowing so that we can take the right kind of action for ourselves. Yes. And also it's so much work to search the internet, right? I mean, on the one hand, your doctor doesn't know this stuff, but then you have to figure out all the stuff. So do I cycle sync? Do I seed cycle? Do I yoni steam? Do I go paleo? Do I go pegan? Do I go intermittent fasting? It's so, I'm a physician with 37 years of experience. And I sometimes feel overwhelmed. I'm like, ah, wait, there's another new diet. Did I miss that? Is it research on it? Does it really work? Who made it up? So part of what I tried to do was do some of the work that we're already busy enough that you don't have to do it. Like you don't have to figure out, do I take this herb? Do I take that supplement? 
what diet, what do I keep in, what do I take out? So I hope it just, I always feel like healthy shouldn't be so hard. And the internet in one way has given us so much liberation, but on the other hand, oh, it's given us so many choices. Yeah, it can get very, very, very confusing very quickly. Very overwhelming. The book is out now. So excited. Uh, I know we can get it on Amazon and Target, Barnes & Noble, all the places, but I know I'm going to be sending people to the site here because they can order it and get some amazing bonuses. Anything you want to do to speak into that? Oh, yes. So you can go to my website and you will find a link to basically upload your proof of purchase. And when you do, you will get a replay through the middle of July of an amazing event. Ricky Lake is going to be interviewing me about my book and I'm so excited and there are more speakers and things happening. So make sure to go to avivaram.com forward slash book. And once you upload that, you'll actually be in my whole email newsletter system. And so you'll get updates on all the wonderful things I'm doing that are book related, hormone related, all kinds of exciting stuff, gut related, cortisol, adrenal, thyroid, herbal, all of it. Yay. Thank you so much. We'll have it in the show notes. We'll have it all over the place. I just want to say congratulations on this beautiful book and thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you for this really lovely conversation. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on. There is so much about Aviva's message that sets my soul on fire. She's like a sister from another mother. Are you resonating with a need for more hormone intelligence and literacy? If so, keep tuning into this podcast and definitely go and grab Aviva's new book, which is available now. Her book, Hormone Intelligence, is fantastic, and it's a great resource to turn to as you navigate your many hormone and health journeys throughout your beautiful life. Now, I will have her book in the show notes for episode 277, or you can go to her website, which will also be in the show notes, and that is avivaram.com slash book. And be sure to tune into the next episode coming up this week, literally on Friday. I'm going to be sharing how intermittent fasting can bring in more focus, energy, and overall brain function. I'm super excited for this episode because I know so many of us are struggling with brain fog, low energy, sluggishness, and an inability to focus. So I hope that you tune on in because I'm going to be laying out the solutions with a powerful, powerful lifestyle change. Until then, have an amazing week. 